and uh, start uh, talking, giving some announcements, and then that'll get everyone else to, uh, to make their way in. Uh, glad you're here this morning uh, for the conference, uh, Cliche Christianity, and uh, anyway, I think that uh, we have some uh, good topics and uh, uh, sessions planned, uh, so hopefully that will be uh, a blessing to all. Uh, the format, the way we're going to do this today is we're basically going to have three sessions. Each session will be split into two parts. Uh, Ish will do one part and I'll do one part. Uh, the first two sessions, and then the third session, Ish will do a part, and then we'll have a Q&A at the end of that. Uh, there's going to be a number on the screen that'll pop up. If you have a question from any of the sessions, you can just text them to that number, and then whenever we do the Q&A, uh, we'll ask those from the microphone so that we can record those and have those available. Uh, and then you can just, uh, so anyway, uh, send those into that number, and that would be good. Also, uh, if you're new here to this place, that the bathrooms on the other side of the building are far superior to the bathrooms down here. So if you need to go, those are the better ones to go to. Also, uh, just uh, to let you know, whenever we start, the, we'll lock the doors on the uh, new side over there. And so if you need to go in and out, these are the doors to go in and out to your car. Uh, so that, that way we can keep everything secure with the women and children on that end and not have to worry about uh, people sneaking in and, and causing problems. Um, so, also, there is coffee out there, uh, and that is available to everyone, uh, and you can bring it in here. It's not a problem. Uh, there's uh, cups and lids there, so everything is out there. Feel free to get up and get what you need, uh, and, and that is there. So, well, we're going to open up with a word of prayer, and then uh, Ish will come and do our first session, which is uh, God uh, loves, uh, he hates the sin, but loves the sinner. That is going to be our first topic today, uh, that cliche. And then uh, after that, I will do uh, judge, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about those things. So let's pray, and then we'll begin our, our conference. Father, we thank you for the time to be together this morning, Lord, to study your word. And Lord, we do pray that you help us to have clarity. Lord, help us to judge all things according to scripture, Lord, according to your word and what it says. Uh, Lord, not to depend on human wisdom, Lord, not to depend on human craftiness, Lord, or catchiness. Lord, we, we recognize and see that there is a, a tendency and a desire in our day, Lord, for, for people to be very inventive, to be very crafty, Lord, to try to be cute and catchy in the things that they say and the way that they uh, couch things. And Lord, we don't want to do those things. We want to be biblically minded. Lord, we want to use biblical phrases and terms and to use them in, in a right and proper way. Lord, according to the context and according to what you lay out in Scripture. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to do so. Lord, help us to, uh, to judge all things, Lord, according to your word. Lord, that we might be faithful and true to you. Lord, that we might know the truth and that the truth might set us free. So, Lord, help us today as we, uh, as we study. Lord, as we deal with these things together. Lord, give us faith. Give us wisdom. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The first topic on God hates sin but loves the sinner. That one phrase can be rephrased in many other ways. God loves everybody. God loves everyone the same. God loves us all unconditionally. Hate means prefer or love less. Prefer less or love less. In the Bible, the words, the original words, don't actually mean hate, people say. They mean to love less. 
Nobody is useless or worthless. Nobody is useless or worthless in the sight of God. God loves you just the way you are. He loves you just the way you are, implying that there is no need to turn away from sin from the time that you embrace Christ. We just need to love on them. We hear that too. We just need to love on them because that's what God does. God loves the sinner. Now, with these phrases, especially the first one, there is an element of truth in it. And there will be elements of truth in the things that we address today. But what does the Bible actually say that we should view, uh, how we should view all of these issues? So, for the first one, God hates sin but loves the sinner. The Bible actually teaches, yes, God does love sinners, and especially he loves his people, his elect But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is an element of truth in that, and that is from Romans 5, 8, that while we were in the state of sin and rebellious toward God, God still chose to love us by sending his son into the world to die for our sins so that whoever believes benefits from the death of Christ. This is what the scripture teaches if we compare Romans 5, 8 and John 3, 16 together. However, the Bible also teaches that God does indeed hate people who are in a state of sin, who are practicing sin, who are unredeemed, who are unregenerate. The Bible teaches that God hates them, and they need to know that God hates them, that they are enemies of God, they are unreconciled to God, and that they will deserve eternal punishment if they do not repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They must be told that God hates them. Now some scriptures. We'll go from Old to New Testament. Leviticus 20, 23. The Lord abhors the Canaanites. He abhors them or hates them. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I shall drive out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I have abhorred them. In Leviticus 20, he details their sexual sins and their idolatrous sins. He outlines them and gives them to us also in detail what has happened to the Canaanite nation. And because of their persistent practice of sin, their refusal to repent, God says he abhors them and he will drive them out and destroy them by means of Israel. But Israel is not exempt from this hatred. It says further in Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, 23 to 32, the God of Israel abhors unrepentant Israel. And if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you shall eat. 
I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. For my soul shall abhor you. My soul shall abhor you. That is not only an abhorrence of the sin they committed, but abhorrence of the person who commits that sin, who deserves to be punished together with his sin. I will lay waste uh, your cities as well and make your sanctuaries desolate. I will, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. And I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled over it. Clearly here, he's not saying he loves them less or prefers them less or likes them lesser than their enemies. He's not saying that. He is expressing utter hatred of them together with their sin. The Lord also detests anyone who practices the occult, who practices uh, necromancy, who goes to mediums and spiritists. Today we call them chandlers, palm readers. People who do those things, God detests. From Deuteronomy chapter 8, 18, 9 to 13. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 13. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. He says, for whoever does these things is detestable, detestable to the Lord. God himself considers these people detestable. De uh, to detest is a synonym of hatred, to hate. Deuteronomy 22.5 speaks of cross-dressers, those who are male yet dress as female, or those who are female and dress as male. Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Whoever does these things is an abomination. Again, another term describing hatred. To abominate means to loathe or to hate. And who is doing the hatred? To the Lord your God. God himself hates people who do that. Next, we have in Deuteronomy 25, 25, 13 to 16, whoever acts unjustly in weights and measures, whoever acts unjustly in weights and measures, that is in their business dealings, is hated by God. Deuteronomy 25, 13, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight, and you shall have a full and just measure, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord your God. Don't have different weights and measures so that you craftily place them on the scale and make people think that they're getting a pound of something when they're actually getting three-fourths of a pound of something. Don't do things like that. Because whoever acts unjustly in his dealings with money is an abomination. God hates those people. Then 
Psalm 5, Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 5, 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Whoever is iniquitous, whoever practices sin, the boastful, those who do iniquity, those who speak falsehood, those who shed blood, innocent blood. This is what the Bible means. To shed blood means to shed innocent blood. And those who practice deceit. God abhors them. He hates them. He destroys them. They will never stand before God. They will never stand before God justified and in a right standing. They will be punished. Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verses 5 and 6. Those who love violence, God hates. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Whoever loves violence, God hates them. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. You see here in Psalm 11, 5 to 6, God describes the punishment that these people deserve as fire, brimstone, and burning wind. Isn't that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19? It happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude tells us in Jude 7 that that was an indication, their physical destruction, fire and brimstone, was an indication of their eternal punishment. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The Sodomites deserved eternal fire, just as those who practice violence. Psalm 78, Psalm 78, 58 to 59. God abhorred Israel, greatly abhorred them, for their idolatry. For they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel. Here it says, their idolatry, high places, graven images, provoked God, aroused his jealousy, and God was filled with anger, with wrath. And that anger and Hatred coupled together is what caused God to destroy the people of Israel in various times in their history. Psalm 95, Psalm 95, 10 and 11. The generation of Moses in the wilderness was detested by God. Psalm 95, 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation, and I said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. God says he loathed that generation. To loathe is to hate, to detest. And he not only hated them, he was angry toward them, and he said they would not enter into God's rest. From Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, we know that, clearly know, that this meant that they were not ever going to obtain eternal life. The gener generation of the wilderness never received eternal life, except the remnant. But the vast majority of them went to hell. Psalm 106, 34 to 40. Psalm 106, 34 describes the period of the judges. They did not destroy the peoples 
as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. God abhorred his inheritance. The people of Israel, because the people of Israel did not destroy the Canaanites and they instead practiced the evil deeds of the Canaanites. They practiced what the world was doing what the culture was doing, what everybody else was doing. They did that, and they did all this evil. Idolatry shed innocent blood and immorality. It was widespread throughout the land, and God hated them and the Canaanites. In the book of, in the book of Proverbs, we have several instances of God's hatred towards wicked people. His hatred. Proverbs 3.32 For the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. The crooked man, anyone who is crooked in his ways, is an abomination to the Lord. 6.16 to 19, Proverbs 6.16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife, among brothers. When we read the first part of it, we might think, oh, God just hates the eyes and the tongue and the hands and the feet. He just hates the bodily parts. He doesn't hate the person. He hates the bodily parts, we might think, that commit the evil. But that's not the case. It's not the case because it says in the last part, a false witness who utters lies. A false witness is a person and one who spreads strife among brothers. A person from his evil heart uses his mouth to commit evil, and therefore God hates them and abominates them. Clearly, to hate and to abominate mean the same thing, synonymously speaking here in this passage. Proverbs 11.20 The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. The perverse in heart. It's not only the evil deeds that manifest themselves on the outside that God hates. He also hates the perverse heart that produces the evil deeds. Evil heart produces evil actions. Proverbs 11.20 And God hates the heart that produces it. Proverbs 16.5 16, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Certainly, assuredly, he will not be unpunished because a proud heart deserves God's punishment because God abominates them, God himself. 17.15, Proverbs 17.15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Whoever justifies the wicked makes excuses, exonerates, even in an official or unofficial sense, whether it's in the courtroom or outside of the courtroom, whoever justifies wicked people makes excuses for them. 
and he who condemns the righteous, and rather points his finger at the righteous, and fault finds with them. Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now, why is it important that we note these in the book of Proverbs? It's important because till now, there are many people who think, well, that was in the Old Testament, or that was under the Mosaic Covenant. God hated people in the Mosaic Covenant, but he doesn't hate people in the New Covenant. He doesn't hate people now. He, he has a higher ethic, a higher morality, people say. However, everyone acknowledges that the book of Proverbs has eternal and perennial, constant, continual wisdom. Everyone quotes the book of Proverbs for whatever they want to, to learn about the wisdom of God. They quote the book of Proverbs, and they do so rightfully. So the one who is a, in living, uh, living a contradiction is the one who quotes the book of Proverbs for certain things that he wants to quote, but not other parts that he doesn't want to quote. And they also do that with Moses. They quote the parts of Moses they like, but they reject the parts that they dislike without understanding a proper way to interpret the Bible. However, with Proverbs, we can't do that. We all acknowledge that the elements of the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, is wisdom for every generation, whether under the Mosaic Law or under the New Covenant. The book of Proverbs is for all of us. But let's continue. It's more than that. Isaiah, Isaiah 41.24, 41.24 Whoever chooses idols is an abomination. Quote, Behold, you are of no account. You, notice there, you, the person, are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. They're the deeds. You and your work. No account, nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. He who chooses you is an abomination. Jeremiah 12, verse 8. Jeremiah 12, 8. Judah's persistent sins received the following statement from God. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. Therefore, I have come to hate her. She's like a lion in the forest and roaring against God. Violently, those who commit sin violently speak and act against God himself. Therefore, God comes to hate them. Further in the prophets, this is coming from the, the book of Hosea. Hosea 9 and verse 9, 9 to 17. They have gone deep in depravity. As in the days of Gibeah, he will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. I, have, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. 
Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. Certainly here, when God describes his hatred of them, he's describing it in clear, literal, plain terms. He's, this is not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating in any way because the northern kingdom which is addressed by Hosea. Hosea addresses the northern nation of the ten tribes. He addresses them primarily and describes how God will eventually punish them by the hands of the Assyrians, a ruthless, idolatrous people from the east. He will deliver the people of Israel, or Ephraim, into the hand of the Assyrians. And it wasn't good when that happened. The book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, describes their downfall and they lived in misery because of that. It was not a good result, but a horrible outcome. Hosea uh, says this very clearly. Amos, Amos 6, verses 8 and 9. Amos 6, 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob, and I detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains, and it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. God swears, and when he swears, he swears by himself, for there is no one greater than God. And when he swears by himself, we better listen. We better take seriously what he says. And his declaration is, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob. I detest his citadels. He loathes their arrogance, and he loathes their citadels. Their citadels are powerful fortress cities. He detests them. And what will God do? He will deliver up the city and all it contains. Not only the city will the buildings be destroyed, not only will that happen, but all it contains. And if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Even where people flee for refuge, here or there, God's going to find them out by the hands of evil tyrants from foreign nations, and they will punish their sins so that men die because of their sin. Now, we might say, and we probably have heard, God, God does this in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. The New Testament God is a God of love. The Old Testament God is a God of hate and punishment and wrath. But the New Testament God is full of compassion there's no hatred there. He doesn't detest anyone there. No one is worthless in the New Testament. God loves us all just the same. Well, that's not the case. Not the case at all. Romans 9.13. Romans 9.13. The Apostle Paul taught that God hated Esau. He taught that God hated Esau. Romans 9.13. Just as it is written... Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But people say, well, hate doesn't mean hate. It means love less or prefer one above the other. Well, if we read the context of Romans chapter 9, it becomes absolutely clear that the Apostle Paul 
from Romans 9, 1 to 5, and also at the end of the chapter, from 30 to 33, Paul the Apostle is talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about forgiveness of sins. He's talking about being justified by faith in Christ. He wishes he himself were punished forever so that his nation, Israel, could be saved. He says all this in Romans chapter 9. He is clearly talking about the consequence of this hate is that they are eternally destroyed. That's the context of Romans 9. But let's also notice the context of Malachi 1, where the apostle quotes. The apostle Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. He quotes from this context. And let's see how in this context, Malachi even clearly describes hatred. Malachi 1.1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, may the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. The people, the people of Israel, challenge whether God loves them. And God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. In this context, he, in the Old Testament, he loved Jacob the person, and he also loved Jacob's descendants by blessing them in ways that were in contrast to Esau the person and Esau's descendants. Esau received his descendants, he and his descendants received a mountainous terrain. Not a fertile valley, but a mountainous terrain that was rocky and dry. This is what they received in the land of Edom, later called the land of Edom. And he is going to, God is going to punish Esau or Edom the nation so much that the people will not live there anymore, but it will be appointed for the jackals of the wilderness, the wild animals, the hyenas of the wilderness. They are going to possess it. The people will not because the people will be gone or they will be very scarcely populated in that region. And even those that have been scattered or a few who remain in the land, Edom says, we have been beaten down. Yes, we know we've been destroyed. Foreigners have come and the Lord has done this to us, but we're going to go back and we're going to retake. We're going to seize our inheritance, our country. We're going to go back and take it. But God says, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Yes, they may try to do that, but God's going to tear them down again. And people all around are going to acknowledge, why is this land a desolation? Why is it a waste place? Why is it so deserted? Why is it a ghost town? What happened here? And people are going to say, men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. The wicked territory, they are this way because of their sin, and God is indignant, angry, at them, hatred, he has hatred towards them 
forever. Forever. This is what Paul was speaking of when he quoted this passage in Romans chapter 9. He was talking about the same thing and assuming that we read the Old Testament and understand its context so that he can make a quick citation and move on with his fuller argument of what he's describing in that chapter of Romans 9. Jesus. Jesus. Matthew 24, 15. Jesus called the Antichrist an abomination. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus quotes from Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, so forth. When you see the abomination of desolation, the abomination, he's talking about a person, a human, the Antichrist, and he's calling him an, an abomination, a hated person who desolates, who commits desolation who destroys people and things. This is what he describes. Jesus himself described this man this way. Daniel did first, and then now Jesus does, and he warns people to avoid him and to understand who he is. If Jesus, who is typically portrayed as the incarnation of gentleness, of humility, of compassion, of mercy and love, if he is, and he is in a sense, in a biblical sense, why is it that the people who say Jesus expressed love, that Jesus, the most loving one who ever traversed this earth, spoke of this evil man, Antichrist, as an abomination, as one who deserves to be hated? Jesus did that. And not only did Jesus do that, he taught his disciples to do the same. He taught the Apostle Paul. Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes more hatred, hatred towards people. Let's begin in Titus 1, verse 10, to understand the context. Titus 1, 10. He's describing people who claim to know God, but their actions deny God, therefore God hates them. Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, for this reason, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The people here he describes, he summarizes that in verse 16. They profess to know God. They claim to know God. They allege to know God. They like to say, I know God. I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. They put, what would Jesus do on their wrists? Not that that's bad in and of itself, but they like to show forth that. That they think the way Jesus thinks. And they act the way Jesus acts. 
But if they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, if they deny God by their actions, by their fruit, by their deeds, they are detestable. Detestable. They are hateful, hated by God. Disobedient. They're actually disobeying God, though they claim to know God. And they are worthless for any good deed. Here we have, in the New Testament, where God describes worthless people. There is such a thing as a worthless person. A person is worthless if he claims to know God, but denies God by his actions. He's detestable, disobedient, and worthless to do anything good. Unless he has been changed from his heart, unless that has happened, unless he has been converted to Christ, he is worthless for any good deed. So, what should we think about love and hatred? God does hate sin. Certainly that's the case. But God also hates sinners who commit that sin and will punish those sinners many times in this life, but certainly and ultimately in the life to come. On the day of judgment, they will receive eternal punishment by the hands of Jesus who will be on the throne and he will be judging the people of the world. All judgment has been committed into the hand of the Son of God. But it's also true that God loves people enough to send his Son into the world so that when they hear the gospel and when they repent of their sins and believe in Christ, they can receive his love. They receive his love and his justice clearly and openly portrayed on the cross. If they want God's love, there must be repentance and faith. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. Jesus also said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The two must occur. The two must occur. Repentance toward God. Turn away from sin and turn toward God. And believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And if one does that, then God in the true spiritual sense loves you. But if one does not do that, and one pretends to do that, one is a charlatan and a pretender, then God's hatred rests on those individuals. Not love, but hatred. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. from the Bible, but as it is used most commonly, it is extracted in a way that is taken out of its context and then used to promote sin, which is contrary to the Bible. So what is meant by this phrase, judge not lest ye be judged? The way that people use this commonly uh, today, both inside and outside the church, uh, even those who don't profess to be Christians or who have a loose association with Christianity but have absolutely uh, no true evidence of these things, everyone will use this phrase. This is one of the most popular phrases that are derived from the Bible in the world today. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Or uh, another uh, uh, categorization or another way that they will say this is, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. 
as if that's supposed to be comforting, as if that is something that is to ease the conscience, that only God can judge me. Or they'll say, well, don't judge me because my sin looks different than your sin. Don't judge me because my sin is different than yours. So what is meant by these phrases, these cliches, dealing with judgment and thrown out like they are today? Why is it that people are saying these things? And what is it that they mean by this? Basically what people mean is that I can live however I want to live, and no one can make any judgments about my lifestyle, about my choices, or about the things that I do. What I do is none of your business. It is a means of justifying living in sin. This is why it is used. People don't want to have a guilty conscience. People don't want someone coming to them and confronting them over their sin. They don't want to hear that they must turn from their evil deeds or that their deeds are evil and that they need to repent. People love living in sin and they don't want anything to hamper that sin. They don't want a guilty conscience. And when one comes and says that this is an evil, this is a sin, this is a wickedness, then it creates a guilty conscience and it hampers them from doing what they most want to do, which is to practice sin. So they say, well, you can't judge me. You can't judge me. You're actually the one who's evil. You're actually the one who is in sin because you're judging me, and that's an evil thing to do. This is the greatest evil is to condemn or to judge another person. Now, this is an insidiously wicked scheme. It is an insidiously wicked uh, cliche because it extracts a phrase from the Bible. It uses a part of the Bible to teach and to promote that which is contrary to the very nature and character of God and that which is contrary to the Word of God. God, as we have heard, hates sin. God is against sin. He hates it. He loathes it. He despises it. His word is given to us to teach us about what sin is and how it is that we can have salvation so that we can turn from these sins. And yet, in this case, a phrase is being extracted from the Bible and is used to justify that which is contrary to the Bible, to promote those things that are contrary to God, to promote sin, to promote evil. It's using the Bible to promote sin and wickedness. This is an evil thing to do. Another reason why this is such a, uh, uh, an, an evil scheme or a, an evil cliche is that no one, even the one using the cliche, really believes this. No one really believes this. They use it personally to justify their own sin. They act like this is a universal truth that everyone should know and that everyone should accept. But really they use it selectively. They use it selectively and personally to excuse their own sin, but they don't use it to excuse other people's sin. No one really believes this. Those who use it are still quick to judge. They're still quick to condemn certain people, people that commit sins that they themselves don't practice. Right? If this is truly true, judge not lest you be judged. If that means we cannot make any moral judgments about any person, then a person who goes and murders 50 people, we can't say it's sin. We can't say it's evil. We can't judge them because of what they have done. And yet those who use this will be quick to pronounce judgment on these people. They'll say, no, 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 no. It doesn't apply to that. It just applies to me. It just applies to the sins that I like to commit. So no one believes this, truly. 
It's used as a way of underhanding and sliding to get out of personal accountability. Another reason why this is so problematic is those who say this are hypocrites. They are hypocrites in the very moment that they say it. Because in saying, judge not lest ye be judged, what are they doing? What are they pronouncing upon you? They are pronouncing a judgment upon you. They are saying that it is evil for you to judge sin. It is wrong and it's worthy of condemnation that you shouldn't do these things. But if we shouldn't judge, then you shouldn't judge me for judging you. Right? If, who, who are you to say that this is a sin, that this is wrong for me to do these things? So they themselves are hypocrites. They contradict themselves because in condemning the one who is judging their sin, they themselves are passing a judgment and they have evil hearts. It's like uh, those people on the left, those tolerant liberals, right, who are so tolerant that they can't tolerate any view that disagrees with themselves. Right? They themselves are a living, breathing contradiction and they're actually hypocrites. They're hypocrites because they claim to be open-minded. They claim to be uh, free thinkers. They claim to want diversity of opinions, but they don't really mean that. They really want their own opinion, and that is it, and everyone else can be silenced. And so it is with these hypocrites as well. They say, judge not, but what they really mean is don't judge me. Don't judge my sin, but I can judge everyone else, and I can judge you for saying this. They are, they are free from this uh, free from having anyone judge them, but they themselves are quick to pass judgment on others. So let's look at what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about judgment and the role uh, that the Christian and how it is that they are to pass judgment in a proper way? And then what does it mean when Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged? What does he mean? What is it that he is condemning in that place? So let's first turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, which is where this phrase is extracted out of its context in order to justify sin. And we'll see here what it is that Jesus means and how even in the immediate context in which it is given, it is very clear that Jesus is not condemning all judgment or all uh, passing of condemnation or of calling sin, sin. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. So there is the phrase. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here, what Jesus is condemning is not just judgment. It's not righteous judgment, where one is clearly in assessing and identifying sin as defined by the Bible. Here what he is condemning is a hypocritical type of judgment. This is an unjust judgment. The person who is pronouncing judgment on another, he describes them as one who has a log in their eye a log or a beam protruding from their eye, and yet while they have this massive sin in their own life, they are nitpicking and pointing out specks of sins in the lives of others. They themselves have grotesque sin. Grotesque sin. But they claim to be righteous people. They claim to be people who are very concerned about sin and who want to take it very seriously, and they want to help everyone else get all of the sins out of their own lives out of their own eyes and yet they themselves 
have a giant log protruding from themselves. They're hypocrites because they don't really take sin seriously. They claim to take it seriously. They take sin seriously in your life, but they don't take it seriously in their own life. And if we're going to take sin seriously, and if we're going to promote righteousness, it must first begin in our own lives, and then we move out to others, which is what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say that it's wrong to identify specks in a brother's eye and to remove those specks. He says, first, before you do that, you have to deal with your own sin. You need to deal with your own sin. You need to remove the log from your eye. You need to repent of your sin and practice righteousness. And then and only then can you see clearly enough to identify the sin in your brother and to help them extract that sin. This is what he's talking. So even right there. He shows that we need to identify sin. We need to identify sin in our own life, and we need to identify sin in the life of our brothers. And we need help removing these things so that we can see clearly, spiritually, so that we can practice righteousness. But if we go on reading here in the context of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving, we will see that in multiple cases in just chapter 7, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on certain people and calling us, the church, the, the Christians, the true believers, to do this as well. That we have to be able to identify certain individuals, certain types of groups and people, and we must be able to identify them as sinners and then also condemn them as such. Just verse 6. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Immediately after this, Jesus tells them, beware, be careful of dogs and pigs, and don't give them holy things. <clears throat> He's saying here, be, you have to be aware of people and what they are like, that there are going to be those people who are like pigs and they are like dogs. They don't want the gospel. They are vile people. They are filthy creatures. And whenever you preach the gospel to them, they're going to turn on you like a rabid dog and they're going to bite you. Or they're going to be like a, a, a filthy pig and they're going to turn upon you. And he says, if that is the case, if someone evidences by their rejection of the gospel that they are a dog or they are a pig, he says, don't give them holy things. Don't give them the gospel. Don't deal with them. Reject them. Turn away from them. This is uh, similar to shaking the dust off of your sandals or shaking your garment in protest against them. You recognize that this person is a reprobate. This person is hostile to the things of God. And he says, beware of those types of people. If they evidence that, then don't give them holy things because they're going to turn on you. But if we're going to practice this, what do we have to have the ability to do? What do we have to do? We have to recognize that there are certain individuals that are characterized as dogs and as pigs. And then we have to avoid those kinds of people. We have to make a what? We have to make a judgment about the individual. And we have to classify them, define them according to what they are spiritually. In this case, they are spiritual pigs and they are spiritual dogs. Did you know that Jesus called people's pigs and dogs <laughs> here he does he says that there are people that are like pigs and people that are like dogs continue reading in verse 15 beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here, he says, you have to beware of false prophets, false teachers. There are going to be those who claim to be true prophets of God. They claim to be true messengers of God. They come to you, and when they come to you, they don't have a banner that says, I'm a false prophet. They don't have a stamp on their forehead that says, I'm a false teacher. I'm really a ravenous wolf. You need to beware of me. This is not the case. How do they come? They come in sheep's clothing. They present themselves as if they are truly the people of God. They present themselves as if they are true prophets of God and true teachers of God. But inwardly, he says, that which is unseen is that they are ravenous wolves. This is what they are like on the inside. But Jesus says they won't be able to dupe us. They won't be able to pull the wool over us because we will recognize them by their fruits, which means we have to be able to what? We have to make a judgment. We have to be able to look at the false teacher. We have to be able to listen to what he says and weigh and judge it according to the word of God. We also have to be able to look at the fruit of his life, look at the type of life that he lives, and see that this is not a righteous man. This man is unrighteous. His deeds are evil deeds, and we know that no true prophet practices evil deeds like this man. And we identify him by his fruit. We have to be able to make a judgment, right? We do this all the time. When we go to the grocery store and the wife says, pick up uh, five apples, right? I have to be able to recognize the, the difference, distinguish between an apple, an orange, a lemon, you know, a grapefruit, uh, grapes, all these different types of fruit. I understand and recognize that an apple looks a certain way. And then I purchase according to what it is. I make a distinction, a judgment, according to these different types of fruit. And so we must be able to do in the Christian life. There are things, there are deeds, fruits, that accord with righteousness. Right? We have to be able to identify those things. And the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark on those things. It gives us multiple times lists of things that will be true of God's people, of those who are righteous. We have to be able to identify those things and identify those things that are wicked, that are evil. And if someone is evidencing, practicing evil deeds, we can know right from the get-go that he is a dog, he is a pig, he is a false teacher. And we can reject this person. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now we have another group of people. We have the false teachers. Now we're dealing with common people, with those who claim to be Christians. There are going to be people who identify as Christian. They identify that Jesus is their Lord. They call him Lord, Lord. They say that they are children of God. They stay themselves on the God of Israel, but not in truth or in right. They claim to be his people. They claim to be a Christian. They claim to be a follower of Christ. They say that he is their Lord, Lord, but Jesus says they won't enter the kingdom of heaven they will be left out. Well, how will we be able to know? How will we be able to know who is a true believer and who is a pretend one, who is a false believer? Well, he tells us, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here he describes them as those who work and practice lawlessness. They don't do the will of God. They practice sin. So even though they make a good profession, it's good to call Jesus Lord, Lord. Right? That's a good thing to do. They make a good profession outwardly, yet their profession is not backed up. It is not proven by a life of righteousness because they practice that which is lawless. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall. Here again. The evidence of what distinguishes between the true child and those who are pretenders, those who have a false profession, is those who hear the words of God and do them. Those who evidence a submission to the words of Christ. They hear the word of God and they believe what it says and they keep what it says. Those things that are laid out, those doctrines that are incumbent upon us to believe and profess, they believe and profess these things. And those commandments that are laid out by Christ that he expects his children to obey, they receive those commandments and they obey them. They are humble, they tremble at the word of God. But those who are false, they hear the words of Christ but they don't do them. They reject some, if not all, of the doctrines of the Bible. They reject some, if not all, of the commands of the Bible and say, no, we don't have to do these things. We don't have to practice this. And so they prove themselves to be false. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. There the apostle says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their power of discernment trained by a constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here he says that those who are mature, those who are mature in the faith, have a power of discernment. They have the ability to discern between good and evil. They know how to identify that which is good and that which is evil and they are able to discern between the two so that they avoid that which is evil and they embrace that which is good. Here, a quality of a mature Christian is the ability to judge and to distinguish between good and evil. Both good and evil practices and good and evil people. So there we see that judgment is actually a mark of maturity, a mark of Christian maturity, a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15, says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Here he says, a simpleton, a simple man, believes everything. He's easily deceived, he's easily duped, because he has no ability to discern between that which is wise and that which is folly. But the prudent or the wise man is able to distinguish. He gives careful thoughts to his steps. So when someone comes along spouting off that which is foolish, that which is contrary to the will of God, the wise man is able to discern that and able to avoid those things. He knows how to walk in paths of righteousness. He is able to turn away from evil. Another example of why it is that we ought to and where the Bible teaches that we need to have the ability to judge and discern is 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here, he says that the church, the Christians, have to have the ability to test the spirits. He tells them right up from the get-go, don't trust everyone you come in contact with. You have to test the spirits to see if they are from God. And these spirits are false prophets. There are many false prophets who go out and they teach and preach with a false spirit, not from God. They claim to be teachers from God. They claim to have the spirit of God upon them, but in reality they have the spirit of the devil upon them. They are children of the devil and they spew out lies just like their father. And if the Christians don't have the ability to judge between a true teacher and a false teacher, then they're going to follow a false teacher. Right? There'll be blind, blind men being led by blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, what happens? They both fall into a pit. They both fall to their own destruction. So this is an issue of life and death. It is a, a crucial aspect of the Christian life is the ability to judge and to discern between what is true and what is false so that we don't come under the, the, the spell of those who are false teachers those who are false teachers. Also, look over, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Here again, he's instructing the church that they need to test everything. Don't quench the spirit and don't despise prophecies. But not any prophecy. Don't despise true prophecies that come from the true spirit of God. Right? To quench a true prophet is to quench the very spirit of God. To reject the true prophet is to reject the very spirit of God. However, he says, don't be naive. Don't be gullible. Don't think that just because someone says they are a true prophet, that means that they truly are. You need to test them. Test, he says, everything. You have to test and judge everything, and then that which is good, receive, and that which is evil, abstain from, reject it, have nothing to do with it. Also, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, 
here to the church in Ephesus, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Here, Jesus is not condemning them. He's not condemning the church for doing this. He's praising the church. He's commending them for their ability to bear to discern between a true and false prophet. And he says, you cannot bear those false prophets. They despise them. They cannot endure them. They reject them. They cast them out of the church. They have nothing to do with them. They're able to discern and distinguish between a true and false prophet. And then they properly and rightfully reject the one who is false. They won't endure anything that he has to say. They would publicly denounce this man. They would tell everyone who would listen to them, don't listen to that charlatan, stay away from him, he's a false prophet. And this is good for them to do so. Jesus commends them for doing such. And in doing so, they are actually modeling the very righteousness of Christ. Because when Christ was alive on this earth, when he walked this earth, what did he do? He constantly distinguished between true and false teachers. The Pharisees were false teachers and he told people that they were false teachers. He actually called them by their names and said, beware of the Pharisees. Beware of these charlatans. Watch out for them. Stay away from them. He identified them personally. This group, even though in our own day people would say, well, that's very mean. It's very harsh. It's very unloving and mean-spirited to do that. Yet our Lord Jesus Christ... He recognized that there would be false teachers. He identified those false teachers. And when he did, he told everyone to stay away from them. And this is not unloving. This is actually the loving thing to do. Another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here is a passage where we see that this is to be practiced in the church. In the church, this ability to distinguish between good and evil, to recognize an evil person, and then to expel them from the church. They are to judge the person, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. There, Paul himself says he has done what? I have already pronounced judgment on him. Paul judged him. He pronounced a judgment against him. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
purge the evil person from among you. Here, Paul clearly states that it is the responsibility and duty of the church to deal with those brothers who are in their midst, who are associated with them, but who are not practicing righteousness. Again, we're not talking about someone has a sin and they're repentant of. This is someone who is practicing an open, grotesque sin, and he will not repent of these things. And he says the church has to identify the sin and has to treat the sinner with severity, with harshness. They have to pronounce condemnation on him and remove him from the church. And this isn't just an option. This is not Paul saying, if you want to, you can do this. If you're really courageous, you can do this. If you want to practice these things, I permit you to do so, but you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Rather, what do we see here? What is the church doing by not dealing with this man? They're actually committing a sin against God. So failure to judge someone who is living and practicing sin and dealing with them the way the Bible expects us to deal with them by cleansing out the unleavened or cleansing out the leaven is actually to commit a sin against God. Failure to judge righteously is a sin against God. And if we don't do this, then we ourselves are sinners. We are judges with evil thoughts because we place ourselves over the word of God. So, the phrase, judge not lest ye be judged, is not condemning all judgment. Because it's very clear in the Bible that the believer, the Christian, has to be able to distinguish between good and evil, and between the righteous and the wicked, and between false prophets and true prophets. We have to be able to do so, and this entails us making judgments about their life, about their actions, about their words, about who they are, their character. We have to be able to do these things. We have to have the the ability to, to discern between good and evil. What is being condemned in Matthew chapter 7, is not just in righteous judgment, but unrighteous judgment, unjust judgment. This is what is being condemned. It cannot mean that a Christian can never make a moral judgment about one's conduct or belief. And even when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that God will judge those outside, we need to judge with those inside, he's not saying there that Christians can't make moral declarations about the way that outsiders live. We have to. How can we call them to repent unless we identify that what they are doing is sin? The one who is an adulterer needs to know he's an adulterer. The one who is an idolater needs to know that he is an idolater and that he must repent of his idolatry and turn to the living God, which means we have to make a declaration about his sin, that it is actually a sin that God hates, God loathes, God condemns it, and if he remains in that sin, he will be destroyed on the day of judgment, and he must turn from that sin. You can't preach the gospel without judging, without condemning sin. It is, it is central to the gospel. Calling sin, sin, is not contrary to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Calling a false teacher a false teacher is not contrary to Matthew 7, 1. Identifying the false teacher by name is not contrary to what is taught there. If someone is practicing sin, we must call it sin, and we must call the person to repent. And that is the loving thing to do. These naysayers and critics will say, no, 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 we should just let it go. We should just love them. 
We should just be gracious to them. We'll just, we'll win them with smiles and lollipops and sugar and kisses and hugs. We'll give them lots of those things, high fives. And then over time, they'll, they'll come to their senses. No, the Bible commands us that if someone is, again, practicing sin, unrepentant sin, we have to go to them and call them to repent. And if they will not repent, we go through the process laid out in Matthew chapter 18, and eventually we expel them from the church. And in doing that, we are pronouncing condemnation upon them. We are saying they are outside of the grace and love of God, and they are out with the world, and they are those who are abhorred and hated by God. What Jesus is condemning in Matthew 7 is not righteous judgment, but it is unrighteous judgment. In Matthew 7, it is the judgment of a hypocrite, the one who is passing and pronouncing judgment on others' sins when he himself has grotesque sin in his own life. We ought not to do that. But that's not the only type of unjust judgments we can do. Isaiah chapter 8 also tells us that there is a condemnation or a woe upon the one who calls evil good and good evil. That when someone is calling evil good and good evil, they're making a judgment but they're doing it backwards. Everything is upside down. When we pronounce judgment, we have to call evil evil and good good. And if we get that backwards, then we ourselves are judges with evil motives. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 18 says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me... Wrong passage. Isaiah chapter 5. 5 is the one I wanted. 5. Although Isaiah chapter 8 is a good one as well. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Who are, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Here he pronounces condemnation on the one who calls evil good and good evil. Right, we see this in our own day with the sin of, uh, say, the sin of sodomy that's being practiced. If you call sodomy a sin, what will they say about you? You're an evildoer. And if you praise this sin, this deviant lifestyle, they will say, oh, you're a very righteous person. This is, you're a very tolerant and a very loving person. But actually, you're under the condemnation of God because you're making an unjust judgment. You are reversing the very counsel of God. Because God has declared this to be a sin... Therefore, we must call it a sin. And if we say that which God says is a sin is not a sin, but is actually a good thing, then we are overturning the very counsels of God. We set ourselves up as judges who are superior to God Almighty. We have a wisdom that is greater than God. God, our ethics, our righteousness, our understanding of good and evil is superior to yours. You say that this is a sin, but God, that's very outdated. We're modern men, right? We have, we've come to new understanding. We are enlightened people. But this is evil. We must not do this. Another type of judgment that is evil is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and that is to pass premature judgment or a judgment without having access to all the facts without having access to all that you need first corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 he says this is how one should regard us as servants of christ and stewards of the mysteries of god moreover it is required of stewards that they be found faithful but with me it is a very small thing that i should be judged by you or by any human court in fact i don't even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. 
it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Here, what Paul is saying is that Paul has come to them as a servant of Christ and as a steward of the mystery of God. And they have no reason to doubt that Paul is not a true apostle. Because everything that he has preached and everything that he has taught is in line and in step with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they should not pronounce upon him a judgment that he is a false teacher. Or they should not pronounce that, yes, Paul, what you say is good, but we know that your motives are really evil. We know that you're doing this and what you're saying is good and right and consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we think that your motives are evil, that you're doing this for filthy gain. You're doing this to promote yourself, to gain honor and notoriety for yourself. Paul says, no, you shouldn't do that. If someone comes and is preaching what is true and right and consistent with the word of God, then we ought to receive them as a true teacher of God. And we don't have access to the hidden motives of the heart. We can't see inside. We can't see what their intentions are. So if they're preaching what is true and right, then we must receive them as a true preacher of God until they evidence that they're a false teacher. And in this case, Paul says, you can't judge me. A human court can't judge me. He says, I don't even judge myself because I have a clear conscience. He has a clear conscience before God, but he says, God will judge me on the day of judgment. He will bring everything to light on that day. And if Paul's motives were ill motives, then God will bring that to light and God will judge him for those things. But as it is, we cannot judge one way or another because we don't have access to the heart. So if someone is doing that which is good and right, that is consistent with the will of God, then we ought to rejoice in those things and not be suspicious in an evil way that their motives might be wrong because we don't have access to the heart. Let God bring that forward on the day of judgment. Now, if they begin to do what's evil, what is condemned by Scripture, and we see that, then we can pronounce judgment on them. But until then, we must receive them as those who are good and true and righteous. We ought to avoid then these types of unjust judgment. The hypocritical judgment, the one who reverses everything and does what is, calls what is good evil and evil good, and then those who pronounce premature judgment on the motives and secret things of the heart that only God can see. This is what the word of the Lord says. This is what we must believe, and this is what we must practice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the clarity in which it gives to us. Lord, how scripture can, can be harmonized together. Lord, when one passage seems to contradict another, Lord, if we just study and, and will dedicate ourselves to understanding these things, we can see that, Lord, there is an easy answer to this. There is a, a ready solution that, Lord, your word goes together perfectly. So, Lord, teach us, Lord, to, to read all of the scriptures. Lord, so that we are able to discern between good and evil. Lord, give us this discernment. Lord, make us mature so that we can discern that which is right and that which is wrong. Lord, that which is good, that which is evil. Lord, those who are true teachers and those who are false. Lord, that we might do that which is pleasing to you. Lord, help us in these things. We need your help. Lord, we are on our own. We are without wisdom. Lord, we are weak. We are foolish. Lord, we would be easily deceived. So, Lord, we need you to give us your wisdom. We need your spirit to guide us and to give us understanding in all things. Lord, do this for us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.